0: Morning. Well, I can tell you that uh, as we were singing, I was thinking about that phrase: that our sins are many, but His mercy is more. And that song just kept those words just kept coming back and back to me. Our sins—they are many, but His mercy is more. I'm trying to get our, uh, my um, iPad to register here. Do we have our um, Apple TV going on up there? It's not showing. Is it the BFG room? Is that what we're going on? Let's see here. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Nothing. All right, well, what we'll do in the meantime is, Allison, if you would, uh, just put up my, um, my keynote that I sent to you this morning, okay? You wonder almost, how were they able to reach people in the Great Awakenings? They didn't have keynote. What were people looking at during those days? Their, e- their email, is that what you said? Oh, is my email up there? This is why I don't normally bring technology into the service. There's always some kind of issue. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, sometimes we fail to honor and glorify you. For your mercies and for your gifts. Because we fail to recognize just how many sins are attached to our names. We excuse our sins always by some other person or some other thing. That these are the reasons why we sin. Instead of looking upon your face as Job said, I heard of you. I heard of you, God. But now, now I see you and I am a man. And I will repent in sackcloth and in ashes. God, let us see your glory that we might see just how sinful we are before you just how naked and in need of your righteousness to clothe us so that we might cry out as job did we are undone we are on our knees before you in sackcloth and in ashes father forgive us where we have sinned against you we know you will But, Lord, it is my goal, it is my hope that you would convict us of two things, of the many, many sins in our lives, and that your mercy is far, far more. Father, we love you. Amen. You got your clicker. Everybody, this is Jeanette. I couldn't exist without Jeanette. Jeanette is the hand that, uh, she is the man behind the curtain. I'm just the the pretty face, but she's back there spinning the wheels. Some of you are like, what's he talking about? It's called the Wizard of Oz. I was going to say go rent it, I was going to say go rent it, but I don't think we do that anymore. We're finishing our four-sermon series on the evidences for God. And the final... Evidence or the final argument for God's existence is the moral argument. It is my favorite of all the arguments. Now, the one thing I wanted to make very clear as we did this study was that we are not basing our belief in God upon these arguments, that we begin with the Word of God in order to come to our understanding of who God is and how and why He exists. But these things that the Bible tells us about God, we ought to expect to find in the real world. I want to read you a quote this morning as we begin. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. Say that again. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. This point has to be exhibited again and again despite the English flatheads, says the person quoting. Christianity is a system. A whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, namely the belief in God, one breaks the whole. Nothing necessary remains in one's hands. Christianity presupposes that man does not know Nay, cannot know what is good for him, what evil. He believes in God who alone knows it. Christian morality is a command. Its origin is transcendent. It is beyond all criticism, all right to criticism. It has truth only if God has truth. It stands or falls With faith in God. One of the worst lies that the world tells today about Jesus Christ. Is that he was a good man or a good teacher. And is a terrible, terrible lie to say about Jesus. That he was a good man or a good teacher. Because what is bound up in that statement is that Jesus is merely a good man or a good teacher, but that he is not God. Because today in the light of naturalism, in the light of Charles Darwin, in the light of the scientific revolution, we have done away with the need for the mythos of a God. We know we don't need a God according to our society today. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, according to the secular scientists, that there is no God. And so if we can say anything about Jesus, we don't need to say that Jesus was this bad guy. He's not a a bad guy. He was a good guy. He had a lot of good things to say. But away with all of this nonsense, says C.S. Lewis, about Jesus being a good teacher. If Jesus is not God, he is a liar. If Jesus is not God, he is a lunatic. If he is not a liar. This idea that Jesus is a good teacher, without him being God, not only ruins Jesus' entire image, but it ruins the very concept of morality, or the very concept of good, at all. What is it to talk meaningfully about God if there isn't or about about morality if there is no God, if there is no lawgiver? Do what you will, live how you want, live the way that makes your life happiest and best if there is no God. But the idea that you can have a life of morality without God, those two things are mutually exclusive. If there is no God, all things are permissible. Now what's so funny about that particular way of thinking is we love that way of thinking when it comes to our desires. We like to say that we have the right to make our own decisions and we can live our life any way that makes us happiest. But when it comes to everyone else, we want them to play by the standards of morality that the Christian Bible has set. We want them to be honest to us, but we will lie just as soon as it shows us an advantage. We want others to be Faithful. We want our, our spouse to be faithful to us. But should a beautiful woman come and show herself to be interested in us, we go after her. So we want everyone else to be moral except for ourselves. We're so individualistic that we can't even see the error of our ways. The man who quoted, who I just quoted was a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche he was an atheist philosopher he was in fact hitler's favorite philosopher along with g w f hegel if if there is no god holocaust is permissible You say, wait a minute, I don't like Holocaust. We all know Holocaust doesn't bring pleasure, but that's just a subjective feeling. There is no ought in what you're saying. There is no reason that I ought not to promote Holocaust if there is no God. If I can get away with it. If at the end of the day, my happiness is achieved, what would I care with yours? Some of you are thinking, this is the strangest church I've ever been to. I want to make the point, before we get to the word of God, what you are playing with when you deny God. Just what are you playing at when you deny God? You cannot have God and still have, not have no God and still have morality. But, if there is a God, He, is the Lord of all things. Let us talk about morality. What do we mean by morality? So bear with me as I work through here in my own tablet. By morality, we mean right and wrong. What is right? What is wrong? And most of our children learn what right and wrong is. Most of us learn right and wrong from Sesame Street, right? Thank God for a giant yellow bird and I'm pretty sure an imaginary elephant that may have been involved in some kind of drugs. I don't know. Hey, bird. You know, he's always... That bird was not right. That elephant was not right. I want to know who was hallucinating, the elephant or the bird. The writers must have been hallucinating. But we teach our kids morality through these shows. But they don't teach our kids God. And our kids are going to learn very, very quickly that if no one's around, why be moral? Why be moral? We're talking about right and wrong. We're talking about good and evil. We're talking about things like sexual immorality. What is it to say that something is immoral sexually? Today, what is considered morally sexually is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We're talking about murder. We're talking about things like stealing. We're talking about things like sexual fidelity. What does it mean to be faithful in our sexual our uh, sexuality? What does it mean to be Consistent and right in our sexuality. We're talking about things like selfishness. We're talking about things like racism. Protection of the innocent. Genocide. Honesty and cheating. Lying. Adultery. Charity and greed. Abortion. And things like these. Ultimately, we're talking about right and wrong. Do you know, this is one of the unfortunate things that I, I meet too many Christians, too many Christians who do not understand this. The law, jurisprudence, is not where the buck stops in morality. Just because... 435 people, 535 people voted in a law that says abortion on demand is legal in the United States does not make it moral. Morality and legality are two totally different things because guess who's making the laws? Immoral people. This was a big thing after... The wall that separated east from west Germany fell, and they had the Nuremberg trials. The big question that came is, what should we do with these border guards? They were told that they should shoot anyone escaping over the wall into west Germany. If they saw them going over the wall, they were to shoot them. It was the law. And yet, we knew, as a human race, that there was just something wrong About that, even if it was the law. And they were tried in the Nuremberg trials, and the charge brought against them was crimes against humanity. But this was an ad hoc tribunal. There was no legislation that required them to be, or or, sorry, that demanded their crimes to be crimes. It was simply what we as a human race could not tolerate. So there's a difference between law and morality. But we're talking about the pure, unadulterated, objective understanding of right and wrong. There is an ancient story in Greek mythology known as the myth of Gyges. It's told in the story in Plato's Republic. And when they're telling the story, Socrates is having a... Debate with someone named Glaucon, and they're talking about they give a, an ancient uh, story about what if a man, and, and I'll just give you kind of the rough uh, understanding of the story, but what if someone were to come upon a ring? Let's say that this ring was a magical ring, kind of like the, the ring from the Lord of the Rings. And if I put this ring on, it would make me invisible, and no one would ever see. The things that I do. And what he concluded. Glaucon was. No man would be able to be moral. Jesus concluded as much. When he argued with the Pharisees. And he said yes. On the outside you are. Polished. Sepulchers. But on the inside. You're full of dead men's bones. We put this ring on, this imaginary ring, every time we're alone with our thoughts of hatred and lust, every time we're alone with our thoughts of racism, every time we steal when no one's looking. We put a ring on, a figurative ring, thinking there is no one to judge us, but the Bible tells us. That while man looks and sees the outside, it is God who looks and sees the heart. And he will judge the heart. You might be impressing men by helping the old lady across the hall. But God knows exactly why you do it. God knows exactly why you do what you do. And why you don't do what you don't do. And he will judge us. What the ring poses is this. It poses the question, why be moral? If I could make myself invisible, it seems to me that I could do a lot of things. I could take what I wanted to take. I could do what I wanted to do. This was picked up by many, many people. H.G. Wells wrote The Invisible Man. This story has gone, Lord of the Rings. This story has gone throughout the Western canon. Because it asks a very valuable question. Would you be moral if there was no judge? It's kind of like the movie The Purge for our younger people. Would you get back at those people who wronged you? Would you fill your bloodlust? If there was one night, a year, where you could do whatever you wanted and there were no consequences? This question is pervasive amongst human beings. Well, how then does the Bible answer the question, why be moral? Well, let's look at that. The first way that the Bible answers the question, why be moral, is this. God requires his image bearers to reflect his image. The first answer to the question, why be moral, according to the Bible, is that God requires those who bear his image to reflect his image and reflect it truly. It is to reflect his holiness. Now, when you see A lion, eat a zebra, as sad as it is to see the zebra suffer, we don't incriminate the lion. We do not call him a murderer. Why? Because the lion does not bear the image of God. When a troop, a posse of baboons or a posse of chimpanzees takes on a rival posse and they fight and they tear each other literally limb from limb, They usually will even, one of the things that they do when they attack is they bite off the fingers of the rival chimpanzees and they'll rip their jaws off of their face. And they'll usually, there's something about the face, they'll eat the brains, they eat them when they're done. Some of you are offended, but they don't bear the image of God. And so no one points to the chimpanzee and says, guilty. But the Bible says something about us. Here's what Scripture says. Leviticus 20, 26. It asks this question. Or sorry, it states this. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. You shall be holy to me for the Lord I am holy. And I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Scripture tells us that holiness comes from how we reflect God's glory. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4:7, "For God has not called us to impurity, but he has called us to be holy." So the chief the chief essence of man in the reflection of God is After all, a moral category of holiness. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I have conversations with people. It's always a privilege to have conversations with people. But they're always worried. These couples are always worried about everything except the thing that God concerns himself with. And that is their holiness. When are we going to get married? Well, let's see. We... We've been together for three years, and uh, we're going to get married way down the line. And uh, uh, in the meantime, though, we've got to plan a party. So we're going to wait three more years before uh, we can uh, plan this elaborate party where we can spend a ridiculous amount of money on people we don't care for that much to get some undercooked chicken and have some dudes walk out with a fake sparkler and do like this for ten minutes. And in the meantime, we're going to sleep together. God doesn't care about your party. God cares about your holiness. Be holy because I'm holy. He doesn't say be wealthy because I'm wealthy or be educated because I'm educated. He is not the thrice educated God. We don't say smart, smart, smart. We say holy, holy, holy. God says that's me. Now be me. You bear my image, reflect my holiness. I don't care about your career. I don't care about that. You seek first my kingdom and all these other things. The parties, the homes, how you manage your finances, the stupid cars and phones that'll be obsolete, that money, the the things you store up for robbers to steal. God says, I don't care. What I care about is whose image is on you, mine. And what is that that I want? Give to Caesar his image. Give to me my image. I want holiness. He wants holiness. He's saying all these other things aren't important. Compared to God's holiness, no, they're not important. How rich the person is that you marry? God does not care. What he cares about is if he's going to lead your family to love Jesus and his church. Not how rich he is. Parents, stop it. Stop telling your kids that their holiness doesn't matter by telling them to wait and experiment through college and and, and and date around and do what they want. If you weren't celibate in college, why would you think your kids would be? You fool. Can a man hold fire to his bosom and not be burnt? God cares about holiness what He cares about more than anything in this world. God says, be holy, for I am holy. The second thing that Scripture reveals to us is that God requires a specific type of holiness, namely perfect holiness. God not only requires holiness sometimes, He requires holiness all the time. And he requires perfect holiness to extend not to what we do on the outside, but to what we think and desire on the inside. Perfect through and through. God requires as much. Scripture says this. Excuse me. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of the whole thing. None of you, none of us can say we've kept the whole law perfectly. Galatians 3.10 says for this, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We're worried about curses. You wake up one morning, you find chicken bones on your yard. Listen to me. The curse you need to be afraid of is this. The wrath of a holy God. Chicken bones are the least of your fear. Don't worry with the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy both the body and the soul and cast that soul into hell for eternity. God requires perfect holiness. Cursed be anyone, Deuteronomy twenty-seven six who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Moses just went through all of the things, the list of things that were to separate God's people. The Bible tells us that we must keep the law perfectly. Finally, the Bible tells us, Not only that God requires his image bearers to reflect his image. Not only that he requires his image bearers to reflect his image in perfect holiness. But that God requires his image or that God's image bearers have failed to reflect his image in perfect holiness. And it says so very simply. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I meet with people at this altar all the time who say, I'm a good person. You know, i got got a couple little things that I do bad, but I'm not like my sister. <laughs> She's really bad. Never murdered anybody. The Bible tells us you won't be compared to your sister. And you won't be compared to your standard. You will be compared to God's image. And all men and women, children who have ever lived, the Pope and the pimp, all fall short of the glory of God. That is the word of God. Well, what does reason tell us? What does experience tell us? Is this true? Am I just, is God's word just spouting off at the mouth But when we look around the world, we really see good everywhere. We see perfect holiness and love for God. What does reason and experience say? I want to give you a little argument here. We're going to look at what the moral argument for God's existence says. Now, really quickly, let me define something. An argument is a set of premises, one of which, called the conclusion, is affirmed on the truthfulness of the others, known as premises. It's not bickering. It's an argument. This argument is always valid, and if the premises are true, it is sound. Validity simply means that the mode of reasoning is an okay mode of reasoning. No matter what you plug in there, even if the premise is false in this famous form, even if the premise is false, if it follows that pattern, it's always valid. But that doesn't mean that it's sound in the sense that we have obtained truth. But if the premises are true, and the argument is valid, it is irrefutable. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out this mode of reasoning, and then I'm going to give you reasons why each one of these premises is true, and then what I'm going to do is we're going to conclude and see if it follows from there. This is William Lane Craig's version of the moral argument taken from his book On Guard. Premise one says this, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Okay, here's what it's saying. If there is no God, we cannot say that there is a such thing as murder that is objectively wrong for all people everywhere always. If there is no God, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise 2 says this, however, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Well, let's take a look at these premises and see the truthfulness of them. Number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Here is the conclusion. If there is no God, then there is no lawgiver. There cannot be some law without a lawgiver. You know all of these um, traffic lights and these traffic cameras that we have? That you run through? You know why you run through with reckless abandon? It's because the judges aren't going to judge you for it. They stop. So you're back to breaking the law. Because the only thing that matters at the end of the day, is whether or not you're going to get caught and get punished. You don't stop if you're in a hurry. You run that sucker. And you're not worried about it because there ain't no judge. Without God, naturalism is true. There is no punishment. What Hitler did is simply what Hitler did. Hitler's not being tormented in hell right now. He's just dead. Pol Pot is not being tormented in hell. He's not going to be judged by God. He's just dead. Hitler had a pretty good life, by the way. You Ever read any of the, the stories of Hitler? He had mansions all over Germany. They were beautiful. I mean, he ended up killing himself in a bunker. But so what? If there's no God, he's not going to pay for his crimes. Who's going to punish him? There's no mind, there's no punisher, there's no judge. Who cares? Because without God, we live in a world without a judge. There is no supreme morality. It is all an illusion. You are just simply living the noble lie. Not only that. Someone might say, well, we see people... Especially atheistic people that they live a normal life. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot be an atheist and be a good person. You can be an atheist and a good person. I know many atheists who I like much better than some of my Christian friends. You ever know that? You ever notice that? Bob, the atheist at your work is much more down to earth than the Christians? Yeah, he's cool, man. Bob doesn't really judge you for anything. But he's cool. He lets it slide. Of course they can be moral. That's not the point of the argument. The point of the argument is that they have no reason for being moral. They're living a lie. There is no objective moral basis. All of it's subjective. Bob's just being nice to you because it makes Bob feel good. Maybe Bob has principles for being good. Because he was taught them by his parents. But who cares? The first premise seems obvious. If there is no God, then there is no moral, objective values and duties. There is only social constructs. Well, let's look at premise two. We know, though, that moral, objective, moral values do exist. Moral experience reveals this to be true. This morning, I was listening to my kids while I was working, just putting the finishing touches on my sermon, and I have this beautiful lamp that I made. I feel like i it's an Edison lamp, and it's made out of, uh, out of pipes, and it's beautiful, it's antique, so I feel like I'm C.S. Lewis as I'm sitting at the computer. I feel really smart, and I hear my kids yelling, Mommy! She stole my pancakes! And then Kellen walks over to Claire's pancakes, and what does he do? Give me that back. He's mad. She has taken his pancakes. You're mad when someone takes your car. His pancakes are your car. That's what it's like. He's upset. so what does he do? He appeals to a judge. And he says, listen, judge, this person has wronged me. That's not right. Those were mine. They took it from me. It belongs to me. Set it right. Usually he says something like, spanker. (laughs) This is just true. Man, people today in our world are just mad. They don't even know what they're mad about. They just want justice for anything. I want justice! Justice for everything, man! Why? Moral experience reveals that we know there are objective moral values. It's not okay to take another person's material possessions. And people say, now wait a minute, are you saying there aren't differences in morality? I'm saying that there are way more common denominators that extend to all people than there are differences. Mankind in general has a universal sense of right and wrong. Yes, in certain cultures men may have four wives and in others they may have one. But we've always agreed that you can't have any woman you wish. By the way, I think polygamy is ridiculous, but women having five, four or five husbands, one to take out the trash, one to put the toilet seat down, one to put the toilet paper just right, that, we've always agreed that you can't just take any woman you want. We may agree when, we may disagree on when and when not to fight a war, but not a single culture celebrates cowards. Name a culture where a coward, where the men are running out to fight a war for their families, and one says, "Nah, I'm good, and starts running back to the camp, and everybody goes, Bob, you're back! This is awesome! We all would walk back like, Bob, I'm going to kill you. You know what they used to do? They used to have, I don't remember exactly which general it was, but this was kind of, a lot of generals would burn bridges so that the men couldn't run back, but they used to have a rule. If the guy behind you, if you turned around and ran back, he was to shoot you so that the only chance you had out was if you went forward. Because we have an understanding of right and wrong. No question about it. C.S. Lewis says it like this. God has put his moral law into our minds, giving us inside information that the creator of the universe is intensely interested in right conduct. Fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty and truthfulness. Those moral values are ubiquitous. That means they're everywhere. So premise two is true. So we know that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, therefore, the only conclusion one can come to is that God exists. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, after one realizes that there is a real moral law. And I think I've proven that to you this morning. From there, we realize that there is a power behind that law. There's a real moral law. There must be a judge. No, Hitler is not going to get away with what he did. After one realizes that there's a real moral law and a power behind the law and that one has broken that law and put himself wrong with that power, as the scripture tells us, the the thing I require is holiness. You're not holy. All have fallen short of my glory, says God. It is after all this, says Lewis, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. now what? So far, it's a pretty depressing message. God requires holiness. You're not meeting that holiness. And he's going to judge you for what you've done. Now what? Here's what scripture says. Now we know that whatever the law says... Specifically God's law. Paul in Romans 3 has spent time in Romans 1.18-32 explaining that all, all have rejected the law of God and have gone after the created thing rather than praising the creator. In chapter 2 he shows that Jews have failed to keep the very standards that God gave them. So just because they have the law doesn't mean they're any better. Paul says, look at the people, look at the natives, look at those who don't have the law. When Gentiles who do not have the law follow it, what matters is not that they have their Bibles with them. What matters is not that they grew up in the church or that they went to church camp. What matters is if they're keeping it. And Paul says, guess what they find out? The law that God wrote on their heart, they know too, they haven't kept it. And he says here, whatever the law says, whether it be the law that God wrote on stone tablets or the law that wrote on our hearts, it speaks to those who are under the law so that how many mouths will be shut up every mouth? So that every mouth may be stopped. And not just Jews, but all people, yes, dare I say, even Christians, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That thing God has written on your heart, those words that are written in the law of God in the Bible are there to reveal to you, you have fallen short of God's glory. You might feel real good about yourself right up until you get to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, yeah, you never killed anybody, but do you hate your brother? You've never committed adultery, but are you addicted to lust and pornography? never stolen but do you covet there was one man who kept everything of the law let's just take him at face value he was a rich man in fact he perceived that his richness came from his obedience to god as if god owed him something and he ran up to jesus and he said lord good teacher he actually said good teacher He says, I've kept every command. Jesus says, oh yeah? Just sell all you have and follow me. The man thought he had kept every command. We think we're good people. Until the Lord of the universe reveals to us, you have rejected me. What I want, says God, is for you to follow me. What does the law prove to us? What does the moral law prove to us? That we have fallen short. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is, although the Bible, the Old Testament bears witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you know what separates the Christian from the non-Christian? The righteousness of God. Do you know what the righteousness of God is? Luther thought it was the thing that Luther was to keep. Luther thought it was the very thing that he was supposed to do. He thought the righteousness of God was the requirement. And he thought, okay, i got to get to it. And if he had any kind of sin in his life, there's one story that it tells us that he would go up the steps in his monastery and that there were, he would crawl on his knees. Now they weren't carpeted in those days and he would go up and his knees would be bloody and it, the, the story might be apocryphal, that means not true, but nonetheless, I think it is. He says, he came to the passage that says the just shall live by faith. And it dawned on him that the righteousness of God is not what God. It's not just what God demands from us. It's what God gives to us. The righteousness of God. Where does it come from? Through faith. In Jesus Christ. Today. If you want to have the righteousness of God, you can have it. If you want to receive the forgiveness for your sins, and you want to be made right with the one who will judge you, it is offered to you right now, freely. This past week, we saw a horrific, horrific scene. 14 young people were instantly killed as their junior hockey bus was traveling two hours. Two other later died in the hospital for a total of 16. A month later, or a month and a half after the shooting, at Stoneman Douglas, where 17 were killed. The vast majority were young people. We see these things happen. And yet, for some reason, Satan still leaves you with the impression that tomorrow is guaranteed. Let me tell you something God will guarantee to you right now. God will guarantee to you right now the righteousness and eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He will guarantee it to you now. Right now. And he will not guarantee a single heartbeat in your chest for the next moment. Do not be a fool.